Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and this is the second of a two-part series on a car I call the Rodney Dangerfield of Street Rally Specials, because it just doesn't get the respect it deserves. And what is it? It's the Gallant VR4, an all-wheel drive, limited-edition, four-door rally homologation special from Mitsubishi, available in the U.S. in 1991 and 1992. Now, in last week's Part 1 episode, we explored the history and rally heritage of the Gallant VR4, along with the technology and features that came on this car from the factory, and why these things make the Gallant VR4 a great all-wheel-drive sports sedan. Today, we're going to talk about what to look for when buying a Gallant VR4, and what kind of issues these cars have. And since there weren't many imported to the U.S., we'll also talk about some potential alternative used all-wheel drive sports sedans and hatchbacks with similar performance and pricing that you might want to check out if you aren't able to find a Gallant VR4 that's right for you. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. Now, if any of this sounds appealing to you and the Gallant VR4 sounds like a car you might want to have, finding one today is a little bit tough. Based on the numbers imported, the Gallant VR4 is rare. You won't see one coming or going every day, or maybe ever. I owned mine for 16 years, and in that time, only a handful of people actually seemed to recognize that it was a special edition car, which again, it's that stealthy thing. Most of the time, it kind of flew under the radar, and people would mistake it for like an old Camry or something. Hey, is it your grandma's Camry? No, ding dong. No, it's not. Only when they got blown off at the next light did they realize that something was different about the car. Yes, it's a sports sedan from Mitsubishi. It's an all-wheel drive rally car. Come on, wake up. So if you want to buy one of the 3009 cars that were brought into the U.S., it's a little bit more difficult. You're going to have to dig a bit to find one. Now, the other option you have is to buy a JDM import. And when I say JDM, I'm talking about Japanese domestic market. Now, the Gallant VR4 was sold overseas in Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and a couple other Pacific Rim countries. And under the U.S. 25-year rule, you can import these cars into the American market and drive them here. You don't have the penalties that you used to have for trying to bring a gray market car in. It doesn't exist for a car that's 25 years or older. 25 years is based on the date stamp on the manufactured placard in the car, typically in the engine compartment. It says built on this date. So it was built on April 1st, 1990. Well, okay, 25 years from that date, it's legal to come to the U.S., okay? There is paperwork to do. There's shipping, of course. There's some things to do with customs, that sort of thing. So typically people, if they're not versed in that sort of transaction, they'll pay somebody else to do it. There are companies that sell JDM imports. If you live in a big city, you probably have one somewhere in your city. In near the Seattle area, there's a couple of them. You know, down in California, there's some. Back on the East Coast, they have several. They're around. You can look them up. Just do a quick search for JDM import Gallant VR4, and it'll show up. You'll have some options. You could save some money by doing it yourself, but you might have a giant headache. So maybe you don't want to do that. Now, the only issue I have with all of these cars coming from somewhere else is that they're all right-hand drive versions. 
Now, I could see maybe paying extra to, to do the import thing for a special edition of the Galant VR4. There were several. I think one of them was called the RS. It made a 240 horsepower instead of the 195 you have here. But in reality, the Galant VR4s that you can buy in the U.S. are easily upgradable to that horsepower level and beyond. And unless you've driven a right-hand drive car on the road and done it for a consistent period of time, you might find after the novelty wears off that you hate it. <laughs> you're on the right-hand side, and you're sitting in the wrong place for the, for the road that you're on. Typically, you're more towards the center line. This will put you off towards the side of the road as you're driving. Now, I've driven in Japan. I've driven a right-hand drive car in the Japanese market, and it makes sense when you're over there. It gets a little confusing in the city the first time you do it, but I was able to figure it out and use my left hand to shift and all that kind of thing. That was fine. I didn't have a problem with that. But I've always thought to myself, whenever I've driven right-hand drive cars in the U.S., that I don't really like it. So my opinion, if you're going to do a right-hand drive car, buy one that's never been imported into the U.S. in left-hand drive configuration. You know, that would be something like a Nissan Skyline GTR or maybe one of the funky little Goldwing AutoZam AZ1s. Those are cool. So do something like that that's totally unique. And then it'll keep you in the mindset of, yeah, the only way I could have this is to be right-hand drive, right? But the Glant VR4 was sold here, was steering on the left-hand side. So... Again, think deeply about what you're getting yourself into before getting a right-hand drive Galant VR4. You might not like it. Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Okay, so now that you know what to look for, kind of in a general sense, when you're out shopping for a Galant VR4, let's talk about some of the problems you might encounter with one of these cars. Now, I have to say, in my 16-year ownership experience, I found the Galant VR4 to be really... A very bulletproof car. I mean, not literally bulletproof, but it just didn't have a lot of problems. It was a really solid car. And 16 years, that's a long time. I mean, of course, I had to do maintenance stuff. You know, I replaced brake pads. I, I think I did a clutch. I don't remember doing a clutch. I replaced the timing belt twice, flushed the coolant, that kind of stuff. But that's just standard maintenance that you're going to have to do in the course of a car that you've owned for 16 years. It's just going to come up. But keep in mind, these are 30-plus-year-old vehicles now, so there are some typical issues that come with any car of this vintage. So first of all, anything that rotates or involves friction eventually wears out. Now, what am I talking about? Things like an AC compressor, alternator, power steering pump, wheel bearings, clutch, etc. These are the kind of things that are going to fail with time. It's not specific to the Galant VR4. It's just a time and use thing. Now, that said, the stock factory parts on the Galant VR4 seemed, at least to me, to be really, really robust. So whenever possible, I would say try to use factory parts. Now, it may not be easy to get them, but it's always worth the call to the local Mitsubishi dealer. You never know what they'll have on the shelf. There's also NOS or new old stock parts available through places like eBay. You can look at galantvr4.org. That's a great forum for Gallant owners. They have a for sale section on that website where you can, you know, you can buy cars if there's some available, but they have parts and other stuff that people are selling. So I would go there and check. And if you have to do something that's like a remanufactured part, if possible, get something that's remanufactured from the original Mitsubishi part, like an alternator or a power steering pump. Okay. Other problems, so idle fluctuation was an issue later in the life on my Galant. 
Now, some Gallant VR4s will experience this as they age. Like I said, mine did on a couple of occasions. But that was after it had like 120 or 130,000 miles on the odometer. My mechanic at the time, he would clean the throttle body and do a couple other things to it, and he showed me how to do it. So I ended up doing that, did it a couple of times. It seemed to help, but it was never completely solved. It would sort of crop up another 10,000 miles later or something like that. But it was only a problem during warm-up. The idle would just sort of like go up and down between 1,000 and 2,000 RPM. Now, there's probably some specific reason for that and probably something that was clogged up or old or whatever. I never got to the bottom of it, but it was never really a big issue. So, but, you know, check for that if you're looking at one of these cars. Another issue that I had that I don't know if it's a problem with Gallant VR4s, but it happened once to me. In where the timing belt is, behind that is a little sprocket with a small belt that runs the balance shaft, right? It kind of spins in the opposite direction of the motor and it cancels out vibration. Anyway, that belt actually popped off and kind of wedged itself in a safe place, but still could have like flown around and gone into the timing belt. I only noticed it because I started the car one day and I was kind of going up and down through the gears and I thought, the car feels funny. It's just got this weird vibration. I forget exactly where, but like 3000 RPM, maybe 4000 RPM, something. It was just odd. And I thought, did I lose a, a motor mount or something? Did something break? And I called my mechanic friend and he's like, oh, you know what? That actually sounds like your balance shaft has an issue. Bring it in. Let me check it. So I did. Sure enough, um, you know, he pulled it apart. And he's like, hey, look at the belt down there. You're lucky you brought it in. Could have popped the timing belt off. I'm like, oh, great. Anyway, he replaced it. I did the timing belt early. I think the belt had 30,000 miles on it. But it was one of those things where you know, I just happened to catch that. It only happened once in 126,000 miles, so maybe it wasn't a common problem, but it did happen to me one time. So just FYI. The other thing with the timing belt is you do want to stay on top of those with these cars, so make sure it's been done. They're very sensitive to that. And it's an interference motor, so the pistons will crash into the valves if the belt breaks, the timing belt. So keep that in mind. Another thing I would say is to be careful when selecting suspension parts. You could end up with something that's much too harsh if you decide, hey, I want to get some lowering springs and some different shocks to, to put on my car. I purchased a set of white line springs and KYB AGX adjustable shocks for my Gallant VR4 and <laughs> regretted the choice once installed. The car sat lower. I didn't mind the ride height. It was like maybe, I don't know, three quarters of an inch lower. I didn't mind it in terms of how it looked. But speed bumps in places like Home Depot where the bumps are made to slow down people driving, you know, these big off-road Ford Raptors with 14 inches of suspension travel, those kind of giant speed bumps would drag on the bottom of the car. It's like, oh, God, you know, every time they kind of drag a little bit, so you're like, oh, no, what am I, what am I crushing under there? Well, I had some slight scrapes on the uh, subframe and a little bit on the exhaust, nothing major, but just annoying, right? So I was kind of thinking, no, that's bad. But worse than that was the ride quality. Now, the cornering limits were higher on the car. I did like that part of it. But I got to say, it was a harsh little bastard on a bumpy road. And I seriously considered swapping out the white line springs for the stock springs. I mean, I was just like, no, this is terrible. So, and I wasn't sure if it was the springs or the shocks. I mean, the springs obviously brought it lower to the ground and made it stiffer. But, you know, the shocks contributed to part of this harshness, too. So this whole thing brings me to another point, which is don't 
ever throw out your old parts. Don't throw them out. Don't sell them. Don't get rid of them, especially on something like a limited edition Gallant VR4. This is a car where all the parts together make the car. And if you start parting it out and selling things, it's not the same car, right? Anyway, I kept those parts. And when I sold the car, they went with the car. I told the guy, I said, you know, if you don't like the springs and shocks on the car, you know, here's the old stuff. Um, You might be able to have the shocks rebuilt. The springs are fine. So they went with the car. Now he could have thrown them in the dumpster, but at least he had them and he had a choice to make. So that was a good thing. Next up, I would say the transmission on the car. I found it to be just fine for me, but the Galan VR4 has a kind of a tall shift lever and a bit of a bulky shift linkage. I want to liken it to sort of an old Porsche, if you've ever driven one of those. Old 911 or a 914. You know, it's got this long throw and it's just notchy and funky. The synchros will go bad if you abuse it. I've driven a couple of Galant VR4s where like downshifting to second gear or upshifting to third, you get a little bit of a tick. Yeah, just uncomfortable. And, you know, then you got to rebuild the thing, which is a pain. Now, I tend to shift my cars gently to preserve them. I don't do like drag race shifts. I'm not slamming the shift lever back and forth. So I was careful with it. And the car was still in decent shape at 218,000 miles. If any of that was worn out, it was simply because it gone 218,000 miles. It wasn't because it was abused. The two owners, myself and the guy before me, were adult owners. We weren't out racing the car, hooning, breaking things. But the transmission seemed to be a little bit, I don't want to say frail, but they don't like abuse. So if you get one that's been abused, you're going to know it. Now, this next thing is really kind of a big problem because it can leave you stranded. It only happened to me twice, but it did happen. And this is where the diodes in the ECU, engine control unit, some people call it the engine computer, they can leak and they can cause running or drivability issues. So I had this experience two times, like I mentioned, during the 126,000 mile ownership experience. First time was around, I want to say 110,000 miles. And the second time was over 200,000 miles. Anyway, based on that, you can probably figure, I mean, this is just, you know, by my calculation, you can figure during any 100K window, 80K window of driving, you might experience a situation where the diodes start leaking in your ECU. Now, I found a guy who specialized in replacing those in the Galant VR4. I was able to ship him the ECU. I got it back in 72 hours. He put in like three or four diodes, kind of cleaned up the board a little bit. And the car ran fine. It's great. Boom. Done. Now, I don't remember the guy's name. I don't know how to find him. But it seemed to me that doing those diode replacements wouldn't be too difficult for someone who knows their way around a circuit board. So there's probably somebody out there you could search again on gallantvr4.org. Or you could go to the one of the DSM forums because the DSM cars, again, the, the Mitsubishi Eclipse GSX is a DSM car. The Eagle Talon is another DSM car. They both had the all-wheel drive system and the 4G63 turbo motor from the Gallant. And I think the ECU is probably, if not exactly the same, pretty pretty close to being the same. So I don't think they're interchangeable necessarily. There's probably some things on the Gallant that's not there on the other cars and vice versa. But somebody who knows how to fix it on one car is probably going to know how to fix it on all the cars. So something to keep in mind that ECU diodes can leak and cause a problem. Uh, mentioned earlier the rust part. Rust is not your friend on any older car. The Galant VR4, no exception. Okay, so I'll mention rust again. 
Uh, the 4G63, and I mentioned this earlier, but I'll say it again, um, it's robust, but it's not forgiving if you don't do the big maintenance items like the timing belt and water pump service. That has a very specific mileage limit. It's 60,000 miles. Okay. And I think, I want to say the time limit is eight years, but you'd want to contact Mitsubishi to confirm that. It might be six, but you know, eight's pretty typical. And some people go a lot longer. I would be more concerned about the mileage. I definitely wouldn't go beyond 60,000. If you've got a Gallant that has 58,000 miles and you're going to take a long trip across the country, uh, do the timing belt before you go. Don't wait till you get back. They can last about 60,000 miles and then start coming apart. And my mechanic was emphatic about this. Like, you got to change the timing belt at 60K or less. I'm like, okay, great. So I did, and it was fine. Another thing, don't wreck your Gallant VR4. Don't buy a wreck one. Don't wreck yours, okay? Here's why. So the Gallant VR4, again, based on the sixth generation E39A Gallant chassis, there are still probably some parts around, some body parts. Um, you might be able to find one through a wrecking yard. You might be able to find one, you know, again, through GallantVR4.org, maybe eBay. But it's not going to be easy. They don't make the car anymore. And especially some of the VR4-specific parts, there's like some lower body cladding that's kind of ugly, looks sort of like a, you know, the, it's not pretty, but, uh, you know, it's specific to the Gallant VR4. You don't want to lose those parts because there's not a lot of them out there. So I'd say don't wreck your Gallant VR4, okay? So really, out of all of those things, I think the biggest one is probably that engine control unit issue. So keep that in mind, check for that. But again, in my experience, a very reliable, very bulletproof car that just kind of ran and ran as long as you did the maintenance. Just general maintenance. So stay on top of that. Okay, so that brings me to this last section, which is what else out there is similar to a Gallant VR4 from that era? Well, not a lot, to be honest. You know, I mentioned the BMW 325iX. Not really the same thing. Not a rally homologation special. Cool car. Love the car, but not really the same thing. And kind of expensive. You know, going to be probably for the best ones, twenty, twenty-five thousand. They've gotten they've gotten kind of expensive. But there were two cars that were Japanese that were rally homologation specials from back in the day. And I'm not including in this list things like the Lancia Delta Integrale, which is the actual rally homologation special from Lancia. You really can only find those in Europe. Yes, there are some in the U.S. They're going to be expensive, 50000 60000 70000 So they're really not in the same ballpark. On the U.S. side, cars that were actually brought here, there were two. One was the Celica Alltrack Turbo. That was available in two versions, the ST-165 Alltrack, which was here in 1988 and 1989, and the ST-185, which was here 1990 through 1993. Now, I actually owned a ST-165 version. It was a white with blue interior 1988 model. Blue interior, made out of a blue cow's blue leather. I don't know what was their infatuation with white with blue interior back in the late 80s, early 90s. But, you know, Toyota did that a lot. So kind of kind of crazy. I bought the car because it was in really nice shape and it was cool. So and I wanted a rally car and it was before I owned the Gallant. Anyway, good car. Definitely liked it. It looks a lot like the Celica GTS, the non-turbo front wheel drive car. 
almost identical. In fact, it was uncanny how much it looked like a GTS until you got up and looked at some of the details. And one of the big details, there were actually a defining detail, and I guess it's not that big of a detail. The lower front air dam on the all track of the 88, 89 cars had two round fog lights built into the air dam. So that was a defining feature. And it also had, I got to say, likely voted the most boring wheels ever back in 1988. I mean, leave it to Toyota to make a dedicated alloy wheel for a rally homologation special that looks worse than a steel wheel with a plastic hubcap. I remember the first time I looked at the car, I'm like, oh my God, it's alloy. Oh, those are gross. (laughs) It was just a terrible wheel, but it came with the car and it was part of the all track package. So you don't want to get rid of it, but man, it was not great. I mean, the car looked fine, but it wasn't really that different than just the regular GTS. Under the hood was different. Had 190 horsepower and 190 pound-feet of torque out of a 2-liter engine. It was turbocharged and liquid intercooled, which was unusual for the time. Didn't use an air-to-air intercool. Actually had its own coolant system, separate little radiator and stuff. It's kind of funky. And it was mounted on top of the engine. So you open the hood and the engine compartment, like lots of stuff going on there. So more difficult to work on. I never changed the car. I kept it completely stock and I had it for about two years. I loved it, but we were coming into having kids and having a two-door hatchback was just not going to work with a baby seat. So that car went before the baby was born. Anyway, the second part of that generation, the ST185, was the more kind of swoopy 90 through 93 car. Better looking, in my opinion. Hard to find. They didn't bring a lot of them here. They didn't bring a lot of either of the cars here. But again, looked like the GTS from that era. The big defining difference on that car, though, was the hood scoop. The Alltrack Turbo went from a liquid intercool to an air-to-air intercooler, and it had a functional hood scoop that fed air directly into the intercooler for the engine. Horsepower was bumped up to 200 horsepower with 200 pound-feet of torque, and it was similar, I think it was basically the same motor that came in the turbocharged MR2 available from 1990 to 1995. Anyway, all tracks were great cars. A lot of fun to drive. Not super quick. Zero to 60, seven and a half, maybe eight seconds. Nothing crazy. Decent for the time, but nothing crazy. But really planted handling. They'd work great in all weather conditions. I would have used one for my commute back and forth to Seattle, but it wasn't a sedan. It wasn't a four-door, so out the window since I had a baby seat to deal with. The other car was the Mazda 323 GTX. That's the other homologation special sold in the U.S. Now, Neither the Alltrack Turbo nor the 323 GTX were actually sold as limited edition cars, nor were they sold as rally specials, rally homologation cars. They were, I mean, they were probably counted towards the number that Mazda and Toyota had to build to participate in Group A rally, but they didn't market them as rally cars. They didn't push that at all. You know, they talked about the cars as having, you know, traction in wet weather and adverse conditions, but nothing about the racing heritage, which is, you know, kind of a bummer. But it also points to the Gallant VR4 being maybe a little bit more special in that regard because Mitsubishi was actually proud enough to say, hey, look, we built a rally car. You can buy one. So back to the 333 GTX, that was really not in the same category as the Gallant VR4 or the Alltrack Turbo, at least in terms of the streetcar. It was kind of a feisty little hatchback, fun to drive, but not a ton of horsepower. I think it was 132 horsepower from a 1.6 liter motor. 
The basic engine architecture was the same 1.6 liter engine that eventually ended up in the 1990 through 93 Mazda Miata without the turbo, of course. And it also had that same problem that the early Miatas had, which is the short nose crankshaft that could come loose and be a problem. So those cars, not a lot of them imported, less than 1,250. The number that keeps popping up is 1,243, I think. So you're probably not going to see many out there. They're going to be hard to find. And typically when you do find them, they're pretty beat up. If you do happen to find any of these cars, 323 GTX from Mazda, the Celica Alltrack Turbo, either year, either generation, or the Gallant VR4 in really nice condition, low mileage, and you want a car like that, I'd say buy it. Don't wait. They're not going to last long. There's going to be five or 10 or 30 other people like you looking. So get on it and move. But those are your options from that era, those two cars, the Mazda 323 GTX and the Celica Alltrack Turbo. Now, you do have a couple other newer all-wheel drive sports sedan and hatchback options that are sort of in the same price range, at least for a driver quality example. The early Subaru WRX, the bug-eyed Subaru that came here in 2002, 2003, it was available in the U.S., made 227 horsepower, which is comparable to a Gallant VR4 with a few upgrades. The thing is about the WRX, you're going to have a much greater selection, better parts availability because it's 10 years newer. The difference is it was never a limited edition car. So it wasn't, it didn't have that sort of like special thing, but again, it was made in greater numbers and it is a great car. Now those cars do have some issues. I don't want to get into it here, but you'd want to look for one that's again, all the standard used car stuff, low mileage, minimal owners, all major repairs that it needs taken care of any sort of ongoing WRX issues. You want those fixed, all that kind of stuff. But if you find one, you know, it might be worth buying. And they're going to cost you probably 5,000 on the low end to, you know, 15,000 on the high end for a driver quality example. Somewhere in between is going to be a sweet spot. And the next optional car is, wait for it, another Mitsubishi. It's the 2003 Lancer Evolution, the Evo 8, sold in the U.S. with a 271 horsepower version of that 4G 63 turbo engine. This is sort of the eventual evolution of the Gallant VR4. As I mentioned earlier, when Mitsubishi in 1992 decided, yeah, we're going to keep racing Group A, but we're going to we're going to port over everything to our lighter Lancer chassis, they moved the 4G63 motor, that all-wheel drive system into the Lancer and that was the beginning of the Lancer, you know, Evo 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. This is the Evo 8. Didn't come to the U.S. until 2003 for various reasons, but they finally brought it here. I think they brought it here because Subaru brought in the WRX, which had been around in Europe and Japan for a long time. But Americans had been asking, come on, give it to us. So they brought it in and then Mitsubishi followed suit. The difference is going to be the Evo 8 2003 and the subsequent Evo 9 and Evo 10. They're a lot more expensive I mean, they're amazing cars, and they really haven't dropped a ton in value. They've dropped some, but they had more respect, frankly, than the Gallant VR4. For some reasons, again, that are legitimate and some that aren't. I mean, the Gallant should probably sell for more than it does. The Evo, I don't know. I guess it's priced appropriately. But from a price standpoint, the cheapest Evo 8 that you're going to find is going to be like twenty to 25000 which is still likely to be more than the most expensive Gallant VR4 you're going to find out there for sale in the U.S. No respect indeed, right? 
And the final car you might want to consider as an alternative to the Galant VR4 is yet another Mitsubishi. It's the 2009 through 2015 Lancer Rally Art sedan and Sportback. Now, these cars are considered sort of Evo light. It's sort of like Subaru's WRX versus the WRX STI. This is basically a detuned Lancer Evolution. Now, it does have the Evo 10's 4B11 2-liter turbo motor with MyVec, which is basically Mitsubishi's acronym for variable valve timing. In the Evo, it made 291 horsepower and 300 pound-feet of torque in stock form, where the Lancer Rally Art makes only 237 horsepower and 253 pound-feet of torque. Still decent numbers, but, you know, not as good as the Evo. Now, the Rally Art sedan was first sold here in 2009, and the Rally Art Sportback, which is a four-door hatchback, was brought to the U.S. a year later. Both versions were sold to the 2015 model year. Now, for comparison, Car and Driver magazine ran a Rally Art Sportback through a 40,000-mile long-term test, and in that test, it did an initial 0-60 to 60 time of 5.7 seconds and ran the quarter mile in 14.4 at 94 miles per hour. By the end of the test, it had loosened up a bit and ran three-tenths of a second quicker in both 0-60 to times and quarter-mile times, 5.4 seconds 0-60 to and 14.1 in the quarter-mile at 96 miles per hour, which was two miles per hour quicker. So that was great that it loosened up and went a little bit faster. Uh, Overall, they found it to be reliable, but a bit on the expensive side. It was about 30k when new. And with cheap interior plastics and some griping about the upgraded Recaro seats, they, you know, it was a bit of a mixed bag. They liked the car, but, you know, wasn't wasn't complete love like they had for an Evo. Now, these cars have depreciated a bit over time, but it's kind of difficult to put a price on what you should pay now since they're not a lot available. I found used prices across the U.S. ranging between like ten k and $20,000. And the best one that I came across was a two-owner 2010 Sportback with 122,000 miles with an asking price of 13000 That was through a dealership, so you might be able to do better if you find one through a private party that's in nice condition. You're just going to have to look for a bit, kind of like a Galant VR4. So that's the final car on the list of alternative rally-capable all-wheel drive sports sedans or hatchbacks that you might want to consider if you have a difficult time finding a decent Galant VR4. Okay, so there you have it. The Mitsubishi Galant VR4, an all-wheel drive, turbocharged, limited edition rally homologation special. Now that's a bit of a mouthful, but... I'm telling you, the Galant VR4 is an amazing sports sedan from an era of really cool cars. It performs well in stock form with its four doors. It's something you can live with on a daily basis as a daily driver. Plus, it has massive upgrade potential if you want to make it faster and take it to the next level and beyond. Now, sure, they're not easy to find. So if you do come across a stock, low-mileage Galant VR4 in great condition, I suggest you make a deal you can live with and buy it. You're not going to regret it. And for those of us who know it's Rally Heritage, we'll give you the respect you deserve for owning and driving a quietly cool street-legal rally car from the 90s. And with that, thanks for listening to this episode. And be sure to join me next time for another episode to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you love. Until then, I'm Gary Crenshaw. This is Better Than New. And I'm really glad you came along for the ride.